Good afternoon. It is Friday, September 11th, 2015. It is a glorious sunny day here in Tampa, Florida. And uh, I have to apologize in advance if I go into a coughing fit. Most of you know I had to cancel last week's show uh, because I had full total laryngitis, which is not good for a radio show host. But I'm back and I am so, so excited uh, about this particular author. And uh, Greg, you don't know this, but we we don't let a lot of men on the Executive Girlfriends Group show, but uh, you have a link to a, a very special woman um, uh, that is special to our hearts, uh, Liz Wiseman, who I actually just heard speak at a conference uh, not long ago. And I know you guys have, have co-authored some books together. So Greg McCowan, welcome. And am I pronouncing that right? It, it's McEwen. But, McEwen, but after okay, generous, great. After such, such a generous introduction, I can, uh, I can hardly complain. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I typically will take a look at your book and then, you know, read as much of it as I can and, and, you know, then I'll, you know, do a general search on Amazon to see if you have done anything else. And I saw Liz's name pop up and uh, we've had her on the show, I think, several times. And so uh, it's really, really great to meet you. Well, thank you. I'm so delighted to be having a conversation today. So for those of you who haven't uh, heard of Greg and, and don't know about this book, um, it has a totally intriguing cover. And Greg, I'll let you tell me about how that evolved with your publisher uh, in a little bit. But on the left-hand side is this like jumble of threads, ropes. It could be the my computer cord from my computer bag. And then on the right-hand side is the word essentialism, which is uh, the core name of the book. But it's the disciplined pursuit of less. And so those threads or those ropes are all evened out. And, I mean, they're still not perfect, but uh, there's order, and, um, I, and I just love this topic. So, Greg, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about you before we talk about the book. All right. Uh, I was uh, born in London, England. I grew up in the north of England in Leeds. Um, was uh, st- studying to be a lawyer, and then uh, a friend of mine, Sean Vanderhoven, sent me tickets to come to his wedding. And uh, while I was here in the United States, somebody said, "Well, you know, if you do decide to stay, then you should come and help me with this project." And there was something about the way they asked that question that uh, that, that gave me permission uh, to push back uh, on what I was doing. You know, we often know logically that we have an option we have a choice but often emotionally we don't feel like we do and so in practice we don't and so all of a sudden I felt like I I maybe could do something different with my life and so I brainstormed for 20 minutes what would you do if you could do anything and the result of that was a list of interesting answers Uh, but the most material point is that law school was not on the list oh wow so uh so what do you do you know and I eventually I called my 15-digit number back to England, and so I better call my parents, and, and so my mother answers, fortunately, I suppose, and then she listens for a while, and then she says, look, I think you better talk to Dad. <laughs> he, comes, he comes on the phone, and well, what would you say? Actually, let's just pause on this for a moment. What would you say to your son after all that time, all that money, all that effort, he's halfway across the world, and suddenly he's saying, maybe law school's not for me? What would you actually say? Give me, give me some advice to my, to my younger self. This is 16 years ago now, but, but, but tell me, what would you say, really? Uh, I would probably ask uh, what what you have been uh, drinking or smoking. <laughs> yeah, he didn't say that, but he might as well have done, because it's, a, it's an unusual situation to find yourself in. And here's what he said. He said, uh, he says, son, he says, you know what we've always told you. Uh, he says, uh, he says... And, and because all Englishmen quote Shakespeare uh, over tea and crumpets for <laughs> breakfast in the morning, you know, he pulls out he pulls out this line. He says, uh, he says, to thine own self be true. Right. Uh, which is uh, which he's never said to me in his whole life, I might say. Uh, but nevertheless, he pulls out this quote from Hamlet. It's Polonius speaking to his son Laertes at a key moment, a key juncture of his life. And really, that was the inflection point for me. That was where it all began. 
And, uh, and I spent the last 16 years really obsessed over one broad overarching question, which is why is it that otherwise successful people uh, or teams or organizations, but we can stay with people for now, why, why is it that otherwise successful people don't break through to the next level of contribution? Right. And that's a non-trivial question because, uh, because for people who have a curse of capability, for people who have a lot of demands on their time, uh, people who feel often you know, overworked and underutilized. For people in this category, which I think is probably a lot of the people listening to this, oh, I'm uh, sure. you know, th th this idea of why can't I break through to the next level of contribution? What, why, can't, why do I still feel so pulled in a billion directions and plateauing in all of my efforts? This is, this is an important question, and that really is where well, I finally sort of wrote up the the key insights from years and years of studying this question in, in this book that you've mentioned already in, in Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. So that's a little bit of my background and how I came well, to be Well, I here. love it. I love it. And I, I actually have a, a similar college story. I, I went to college for uh, one entire semester and wrote a paper <laughs> on the value of experience versus education and went home at Thanksgiving and had that talk with my parents <laughs> that I didn't want to go back. And they said, well, you're going to go back to finish the semester. And so I did. And then I, I came home and got a job and I have been, you know, working on the business side of things ever since and, you oh, know, never really looked back. It's, it's you know, th this idea of knowing when to uncommit is a, is a non-trivial question. It's a, ch it's a challenging question. When we, because there's something in our culture that says, whatever you do, never quit. They don't stop. You must continue. That, that somehow not doing a thing is itself a failure. Right. And, of course, sometimes it is failure. Sometimes it is giving up. Of course, that's true. But, but there are other times when we are simply going in the wrong direction. Uh, and so if we don't change direction, we just get lost faster. Right. And, well, uh, and yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the whole notion of spending your time on what you call the vital few rather than the trivial many. Um, you know, I think about how much of our day is sucked into our keyboards, right? And and I I look at my own time and, and I spend time on things that make me feel accomplished because I get so many things done. But really, at the end of the day, I get nothing important done. And it's such a, such a risk these days, isn't it? Yeah, there was a there was a recent article uh, discussed or research paper discussed on on NPR, and basically what they were they were sharing the, the is that when we got into social media and smartphones, there were things we gained, and we know what those are. That's mobi mobility. You can be anywhere you want, doing whatever you want to be doing. That means anyone can contact you, you can contact them. I mean, there's some advantages clearly. Uh, but the question was, what is the trade-off? Right. What have we given up for what we have gained? And in this research, what they found is that people have given up long-term planning and goal-setting. That that is the literal thing that has been mm. given up as we have become an email-obsessed, you know, digitally addicted society. And, and I think that is a fool's bargain. Uh, I think that most people, if they really were looking at those two things, they wouldn't choose to give up long-term planning and goal setting for the advantages that they've gained. And yet, as a society, we have given that up. That is what we, that is what right. we, we sacrificed. Well, I want to uh, take a look. I, I mentioned the cover of your book and the uh, just amazing design, because even without the words, the design says – Essentialism, right? It communicates that without even the words on the paper. And I love how you have woven that design, you know, throughout the book, not only the book, but through all of your communications on your website. And, and it just reinforces that clarity. So whose idea was that? And are you the brilliant designer? Well, uh, let me tell you the story behind that because it's actually rather fun. Um, so I did some work with with uh, with uh, um, Amy Hayes, uh, who is a tremendously gifted designer, uh, and I was doing work for her, uh, sort of coaching, consulting her and her her design company. And one day, I was sort of trying to get some clarity myself about, you know, what is it that 
I have done that's most valuable to you, for you and so on. And what she did, she, she stopped and like a graphic designer, uh, you know, answered it with an image rather than with words. And she wrote, drew out almost exactly the image that you see on the cover today. Uh, she said, this is what it was like before and wow. this is what it's like now. Um, and, uh, and, and that really was the beginning. And so before there was, before there was a book cover, uh, there was this image. And in fact, it got funnier than that because that image became the business card. So when I launched my own business, we used that image and, uh, and eventually we're trying, this is before we even named the name of the company. And eventually we called the company this because the word this used to be in the, in the second image instead of the word essentialism. And that's still right. the name of the company, it's this ink. Because we're trying to help people move from a state of chaos, a state of, uh, you know, feeling overworked, uh, you stretch too thin at work and at home, uh, feeling busy but not productive, right. uh, where the email inbox always gets longer by the end of the day than it is at the beginning. You know, this sort of experience into a different type, a different way of living, uh, the way of the essentialist. Right. So uh, I, I'm also such a sucker for uh, just the clarity of organization uh, of the book. I mean, you've you've uh, used the, uh, and I'm going to get the the uh, part of grammar. It's not uh, alliteration. What is it when everything begins with an e? Yes, yes, yes. Assonance. Yeah, so um, the the first part of the book, and and we'll dive back into each of these, is about the the essence and the the core mindset of the essentialist. And part two is explore. How can we discern the trivial many from the vital few? Eliminate is part three. How can we cut out the trivial many? And part four is you know the most important part because the rest of it is strategy. But if you don't execute. You're not there, right? And I've been a strategic consultant for 20 years, and I, I can't tell you how many people I've done strategy for that never got to part four of, of the execution and, and yeah. actually doing the vital few uh, and, and making them effortless, which you, you mentioned in the book. So let's go back to part one and, and really dig into the fact that this is actually a choice that you make. Well, I learned this the hard way. Um, I was working um, for someone who, who emailed me uh, on, you know, I think Monday or Tuesday in a week, and, and they said um, they said Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I need <laughs> you to come to this client meeting. And um, and you know maybe they were joking. I, I don't know, but sometimes in jest there's things that aren't really so right. Out, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, exactly. And so, as it, as it turns out, my wife did give birth to her daughter on Friday. And so I'm in the hospital with her, and the baby's well, and she's well. And But instead of being able to be focused completely on that you know, joyful moment, that essential moment, I felt torn. Right. And I felt pulled to in you know both directions, how can I keep people happy here, and how can I also keep my boss happy? And and, and finally, I, uh, I I reasoned that I I could do both, and so I went to the meeting, and my boss, uh, I mean, she picked me up from from the hospital, as I recall, and took me to the meeting, and afterwards said, the client will respect you for the choice you made to be here. And I don't know about that. The yeah. faces. Did not that sounds completely upside down. Yeah, that's right. It does, doesn't it, rather? Uh, but even if they had, which I don't think they did, but even if they had, surely I had made a fool's bargain. Surely I had fallen right. into this idea that, look, if you, if you can just have it, if you can do both, you can have it all. But that isn't what you get. No. Uh, and, and, uh, and so anyway, what I learned from the experience was this. If you don't prioritize your life, uh, someone else will. Yes. Uh, and yeah, that, the tyranny that, of the urgent. Yes, that's right. And and not just not just the urgent as in the faceless urgent. I mean, often the urgent is driven by people. These yes. are people who are emailing us. These are people who are trying to shove uh, their own agenda into the closet of our lives, if we can use that metaphor for a moment. Uh, and, uh, and And just like the physical closet of our lives, 
we, we, we sometimes get into a pattern of getting more and more stuff in there, and we don't really have a process, uh, a thoughtful process for, for selecting only the right few clothes and, and eliminating the things that aren't any use and, and so making it as easy as possible to wear the things that are great. We often don't do that. You know, the path of least resistance with our, the physical closet of our lives is it gets more and more stuff in it and we say to ourselves, don't we, if, if I only had a larger closet, that would solve the problem. Uh, right. And we think that up to the moment that we have a larger closet and we realize that is not the problem. Uh, and, and, so, and so I want to stay riff for a moment on this metaphor of the closet because, because have you ever had that experience where uh, you go to you know, finally tidy out the closet, finally to get rid of these things, and, and you take an item off the shelf as if to evaluate it for getting rid of it, yes? And yes. in that <laughs> moment, there's something magical, almost magical that happens, which is uh, you know, suddenly it seems more valuable to you. Suddenly you think, well, maybe sometime in the future I should possibly wear that again. Right. You know, maybe, maybe that would fit me again. And, 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 and it goes back on the shelf. Well, there's a name for this, incidentally. It's a brain heuristic, and it's called the endowment effect. And the endowment effect basically says we value things more because we own them, which is a perfectly good thing in the sense that, you know, you want people to own their own homes so they look after them more. Uh, it also explains why nobody in the history of the whole world has ever washed their own rental car. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's worth thinking about anyway, isn't it? So, so we like the endowment effect up until the point that it leads us to overvalue something. And then right. it's a really big problem because then we keep the clothes we're not supposed to keep in the closet. But that's a trivial example. What really matters now, coming away from the metaphor back to our lives, is when we value something simply because it's in our inbox. We value something, an opportunity, simply because it's been offered to us. We overvalue it. And we start to allow other people to define, shape, and design the choices that we make. And we can do that to a point. I certainly got to that point, to this point. We can get to the point that other, we really have given up our sense of choice and that somebody else has all of the power. So uh, how and, do you get to that place of, where you begin discerning? Well, I mean, there's a few things, but let me give you, if there was only one thing someone could do, I would suggest this. Uh, we, we, we're not going to, it's not a realistic proposition to simply get rid of technology. Uh, I'm not a Luddite anyway, so I'm not recommending that. But, but it's not realistic for almost anybody today. Um, so that's not the solution. Uh, but what I do think is a really good idea is to, is to hold a personal quarterly offsite. Personal quarterly offsite. So that is one day every 90 days to really ask the big questions about what really matters to me. What are the few key vital goals I want to pursue? You know, maybe one, two, three really important goals for me in the next 90 days. And what are the trade-offs I'm willing to make to achieve them? And, and really, it's a sort of uh, quarterly clearing out of the closet. Evaluate what you're committed to. Evaluate what you're, you've signed up for over the next 90 days. Hold that up against this criteria. Is it, would I really do these things right now if I, if I was making the decision today? Uh, is this the very best use of me? And so by using this one day out of 90 days and, and just being very gentle on ourselves on the, the other 89 days, recognizing that we're going to get this wrong a lot of the time, but coming back to the what is essential every 90 days again and again. In fact, I just launched a program for people to do this. And, and for those that are really serious about you know, taking this to the next level, they can go to applyessential.com applyessential.com, and, and apply to be part of this program. Not everyone who applies can, can get in. It's a very selective pro program. Um, but, but, you know, that's where we're putting the very best of our learning over these last years about the, right, the very best way to figure out what's essential, what's not. And, and really what we're doing for everyone involved is creating space, the space that has been taken up through social media and smartphones and so on, and, and giving it back to people. 
in it's a place in nature that's where we go it's out in a beautiful environment it's around great people and people really just get to design their life around what's most important uh, after we'd finished doing it I'll tell you this after we finished the first day of doing this all of us could hardly believe that we weren't doing this every 90 days that we hadn't done it our whole lives wow and how is it you know, we want everyone to do it. We want every woman to do it, every man to do it, every student to do it. Every, we want every child to do it. I mean, we want the whole world to start holding a personal quarterly offsite uh, so that they can really make sure they are they're, 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 they're carefully selecting what they will do with this one wild and precious life. <coughs> wow. <coughs> I apologize for my coughing. Um so, you know, as we move through um, the the rest of the book, you begin talking, um, you know, really about this concept of, of taking control and, and being able to discern about what is important and not letting other people, uh, you know, drive you to where they want you to be. So so what's next after that? How how do you get to the next place where where you – so you've gone on your personal retreat. You've really taken stock, and and um, what's next when you get back to the real world? Well, I think that I think that what's important to note is that the book I wrote is called Essentialism, not Noism. And I say that because it's very easy when people read the book. I have a whole section on elimination, uh, and that's really important. So saying no is really important, but. But it's important to get the order right. I mean, first of all, you figure out what is most important, and then you start to negotiate the non-essentials. Then you start to be able to look at requests that come in. Uh, you know, new clothes someone's trying to put in your closet and say, look, is this the very best use of me? Is this the right use of me? Uh, and, and then you can start to, to, to have conversations with people about it. Uh, I mean, I think, that, I think that literally practicing uh, how to say no gracefully is – it sounds like it's sort of, you know, oh, I'm not going to do that. That's a, that's a, you know, that's just a sort of thing you hear here in a workshop, but but it isn't real. Uh, but actually, when I interviewed essentialists, I was really struck by how many of them said they had actually practiced in just this way, uh, that they had written out on three by five cards, you know, how it is that they would, uh, they would say no gracefully. And so there's a whole chapter in the book on the graceful no. With I right. think eight different examples of how one can say, say no, but I think in all it's about it's about you know, using one or two of those or all of them and practicing them until you find ways and start to actually become good at it and start to not feel guilty every time that you you want to push back on a request. Right. Uh, and well, when, and, uh, and you talk about the trade-offs as well, and I mean you you describe the the day that your daughter was born and. And you know you were making trade-offs that uh, you know had had uh, more serious consequences, or certainly deeper consequences relationally. Um, some of the things when we're making those trade-offs, uh, and I think about my own situation. I you know I'm a, a consultant, but I'm also a technologist. And for a long time, I had a product that needed to be retired, and there was a really good essence of that product and that. Piece is what I needed to build my business on, and it took me so long just to make that decision to to remove that because it, it was just taking up mind share and you know how was I going to resolve the things that needed to be done but I really needed to spend my money over here, so um, you know just give us a thumbnail about the trade off conversation that you need to have with yourself. Well, I mean it, you know we, we've we've tapped into this already, but but it's. You know, we mentioned even this idea of the endowment effect. It it really pulls us in, makes it very hard. Uh, you know, another another way of looking at the same thing is to talk about sunk cost bias, which is that the more we've invested in something, the more committed we will be, and therefore the harder it is to uncommit uh, from something that we're doing. And, and I think that I think that what we have to what we have to replace is a con, and the con is that. Uh, you know, I have to do both, uh, and I and I pretend that I can always do both. You see, see, if I was to write the non-essentialist manifesto, principle one would be pretend there are no trade-offs, right? Because we want to live in a world with no trade-offs. I mean, do do you want more time off work or more money? Yes. Uh, you know, 
you know, the, every, the answer to every trade-off, it, the, the desire is, yes, I want both of those things. And so right. I think that, that suddenly, you know, being an essentialist means facing that, admitting it, uh, uh, embracing it, and then actually eventually, not just embracing it and accepting it, finding joy in the principle. Because actually all competitive advantage, uh, you know, all tr- you know, quantum breakthroughs, come out of deliberately making trade-offs, saying, I'm going to go big on this and small on that, and I'm going to do it day in and day out. So in the end, I have a rightful uh, expectation of a particular outcome that's different than other people who are making different trade-offs. It, trade-off is a friendly word, a, 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 a certainly a very beneficial uh, word and principle, uh, but we have, to, we have to first, as I say, accept it, embrace it, and then I think find joy in the principle of trade-off. Absolutely, because it, you know, it actually is liberating um, when you can see the trade-offs in a decision-making process. I want to come back to what you said earlier about you know, the, the saying no. Um, in the next part of the book where you're talking about exploring and really discerning the trivial from, from the vital, you talk about, um, uh, the, you use the word escape, and the perks of actually being unavailable. And this one sounds intriguing to me. Yes, I mean let's let's explore it this way. So so in the last ten years, as we've gone from being hyperconnected, uh, from being connected, excuse me, to hyperconnected, there is the phenomenon of the fear of missing out. That's not a new phenomenon, of course, but it's something that's sort of become uh, you know more more central in the zeitgeist of our culture. Uh, that everyone feels this FOMO, this fear of missing out, because they're so aware of what everybody else is doing through social media. And so people aren't just experiencing information overload now. What they're experiencing is opinion overload. And and so what I think we have to do is we have in this idea of escaping uh, is is to discover not uh, not not just the power of FOMO, but we have to figure out the joy of missing out, uh, right. or JOMO. <laughs> you know, we've got to find our JOMO. There is there is genuine <laughs> advantage not to be there. There's genuine benefit to create space again, to think, right. to create space to play, to create space to, to talk deeply with someone who really matters instead of just going to the next networking event. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I think that we have been overvalued. We were oversold, excuse me, the value of more and over uh, and undersold the value of less. Yes. And uh, and so I think that this is starting some experiments with yourself, not just pilots. We all know about pilots. Try a new thing out, see how it works. But I'm recommending reverse pilots, where you try not to do something. What happens? Who notices? Who cares? What's the cost? Right. Uh, and what 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 was the benefit? And so that we can learn for ourselves. Uh, the the value of missing out. Right. Well, it's funny. I, I'm an HGTV addict, and I don't know if you've ever seen the – they've got a show uh, called The Tiny Houses. Have you seen that? Yes, I do know about The Tiny Houses. Okay, yeah. well, the, the Tiny Houses is, is an amazing phenomenon that is occurring, you know, in the real estate market from people who've just decided – you know exactly what you said that they have been sold a bill of, bill of goods about having more and big and you know sprawling when all they really need is very very minimal right and and they do some amazing things with a small amount of space and i you know i think about that uh in the less literal sense of our lives of you know how we do spread ourselves so thin and we are involved in so many things and, you know, if, if I sit down, uh, you know, right now and do kind of the mini version of getting away on the, on the quarterly personal review, um, I realize there are two things I absolutely love about today being Friday. And one is the fact that I get to have these amazing con- conversations with authors who've written incredible books. And even if nobody ever listened to the show – you know, I get to spend this time, right? My husband asks me why I do this because there's no monetary value, uh, you know, in doing the show. But I said, you know, this is for me. You know, this is something that I love to do. And and the other is it's 
Friday night, and my son is a freshman. He's this tiny little guy that we adopted when he was three from Russia, and wow. he's a freshman who's on the starting team of the varsity football team. And, I mean, he's <laughs> doing amazing. So you're right. When we look at the things we thought were important – and, yeah, I'd like for my company to be making a lot of money and, you know, to, to be spending a lot of time, you know, counting up my, my wealth. But at the end of the day, if I had just those two things and every day were Friday, I'd be really happy. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's, uh, there's, there's so much uh, truth, to, truth to what you're saying there. And, and it reminds me that, that we know quite a lot about uh, people's life regrets. Uh, you know where they've where they've ended up valuing something that turned out to be not very valuable, right? A life regret. Right. And uh, and the reason we know a lot about this is because, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but you know, lots of people have died, uh, right? And uh, and lots of people talked to other people before they did. Uh, and uh, and Bronnie Ware, who is just one of the people that has tried to sort of collect uh, stories and anecdotes and, and interview people. Uh, has found that the number one regret of the dying is that they lived a life based on other people's expectation of them rather than living a life based upon uh, the internal clarity or the voice within saying this thing is what matters most. And, and so that's the first regret. And the second regret of the dying is, uh, you know, the top regret of the dying is having spent too much time at work and not enough time with family. Right, and I think if you if you if you put those together, the question you have to ask is is how is it that so many smart and capable and thoughtful and interested people before us uh, could routinely make that mistake? Uh, because because to say well they just they just they just didn't care about what was important, I think is to is to you know to draw the wrong conclusion. Uh, despite them knowing what was important, they still didn't actually align their schedule with what was most important. And, right, but and I, I you know, don't you is, think yeah. that that happens largely because we're we're a bit lazy and we get stuck in a routine and you know, I, I think if we could just change the scenery in our lives and and that might mean having the family in the evening move out of the room that has the television, right? So yeah, we've gone right. from the little screen during the day to the big screen at night, <laughs> and we never actually talk with each other and look at each other. Yeah, I think that uh, I think this is so valid. Uh, I, I actually think that what we need to do, you use the perfect word, which is the routine. And I think what we have to do is we have to – it's another one of those words that I think we have to embrace and then find joy in. We have to create a dream routine. And this is really uh, – you know, the, this, is, this is the end-to-end um, process I would recommend people go through. You hold a personal quarterly offsite to identify what the things are that really matter to you and the few goals that, that, that you think will matter at the end of your life. And you, you, you tie that to these quarterly goals, but then you also take – uh, each week of your life is like a prototype to, to, to test out a routine that will support the goals, the life goals that you've been tapping into in this personal quarterly offsite. And if you can start doing that, and it won't happen in a single week, of course, uh, but you keep coming back to it again and again, and you keep looking at your routine, and you start to, to make sure that the rituals of your lives actually really tap into the life goals that you've set for yourself. Uh, and you can, you can have that sense of peace and joy in the now uh, because you know you are actually aligned. And so all this, you're right, that when you get into the wrong routine, it's incredibly dangerous because it's so hard to get out of them. But if you right. can design the right routine, you can make all of that power uh, you know, work for you. And this is really the idea of trying to make the execution as effortless as possible. Build it into a routine. Make it habitual. And, uh, and, and just alter your routine just a little at a time. But maybe you just change one thing in your routine for a given right. week. And then you change one more thing in the next week so that slowly you are actually creating the life you want eventually in this week right now. Right, right. Well, it's interesting that you use the word joy. Um, I, I think joy is, is an elusive 
uh, element of our life uh, these days and, and that we really have to be purposeful at going after it. So the next chapter in this explore uh, section of the book is about play and, you know, embracing the wisdom of your inner child. And, you know, I'd love to hear just your, your insights about that before we move on. Well, you know, when, when I'm with my, uh, I mean, I just got back from Holland, uh, brought my children with me, my two eldest daughters anyway. And uh, I remember after I was done with the keynote that I was there to do for you know, the conference I was there to speak at, right afterwards, normally after a keynote, you know, you have to take her, you know, for me at least an hour or two just to, just to get back into your normal self, you know, because you're sort of putting on a, uh, you know, you're getting yourself in a certain mode. And this time, instead of having an hour or two just sort of quiet time, I was in play mode. So it was relaxation time, but I was playing with my children. We were going swimming. We were laughing together. We were just relaxed together. And to me, there was something so delightful about that. To me, to me play is essential in and of itself. Uh, it, it is key for helping us to remember what really matters and what doesn't. It right. helps shake us out of this email to email to email madness that could really, uh, you know, diffuse our ability to discern. And right, so I think right. that uh, I think that you know I just at least this week have experienced again uh, the, the 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 tremendous benefits of play and to be with my be with my children uh, instead of just getting sucked into the next thing. That's so great. And, you know, the next one uh, is one, one I uh, people have been telling me about a lot lately, and that's sleep, you know, protecting the asset. You know, we, we only have one body. And, uh, you know, because I've been uh, sick a bit uh, the last week and, and had a, uh, a respiratory infection, somebody started my day today by telling me that I needed to do a lot of deep breathing because the, the respiratory infection was robbing my body of oxygen, right? And, and you think that about one of the things that happens when you sleep is is that deep breathing that you're able to do at night. Now, my husband doesn't like it so much because mine comes with noise. But, <laughs> um, you know, but protecting your body and taking care of yourself, when we get wrapped around the axle with the trivial many things that are constantly demanding our attention. That's kind of the first thing to go is we stay up late, we get up early. We when we are sleeping, we can't rest. We wake up in the middle of the night, you know, uh thinking about those things that keep you awake at night, right? No, it's absolutely it's absolutely true. Sleeplessness begets sleeplessness. Uh and uh, and, it, and it it all messes with our discernment, our ability to figure out what really matters. I mean, for a start, we would never say to a fellow employee, oh, that, that person's so great, they're just you know, such a great employee, they're just drunk all the time. Uh, <laughs> and yet, when somebody's getting, let's say, four hours of sleep, they, they have the same physiological and psychological condition as if, if they were drunk. Wow. And so it really materially affects our ability to actually make smart decisions. And in a knowledge age, in which we're in, this ability to not just read something or learn something, but to be able to discern which things should be paid attention to right. is like the skill of our time. And, and I mean, I mean, I think more broadly than that, we have just been, uh, we've just been conned about sleep. We have been sold the idea that one hour, hour less of sleep equals one hour more of productivity. Right. Um, but I think what is true and what an essentialist knows is that one hour more sleep equals several more hours of much higher productivity. Right. And uh, in fact, I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, uh, was, was demonstrated really profoundly to me by, uh, by uh, Anders Ericsson's famous study of violinists. Uh, you remember it's the one that was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, yes. The 10,000-hour rule. Uh, you know, so this was the basic thing that Anders found was that the best violinists spend more time practicing than the merely good students, right? Okay, so that makes sense. That, that is intuitively sensible. It's not that they're just more talented. They just actually spend more hours doing it. Fine. But if you go back, as I have done, back to the original research that Anders was, uh, that, that, that Ericsson is, is uh, you know, provided, what you find is that the number two most correlated item between that explained the top performers from the good performers 
was the number of hours of sleep they got. So wow. think of that. So what that means is that on average, the top violinists were sleeping eight and a half hours a night every, within every 24-hour period. So that's, that's different than saying every eight and a half hours a night because they also took more naps than the good performers. Hmm. I just love this story because, because I mean, this is, first of all, they, they're getting on average, uh, you know, two and a half hours longer than the average American. And they're the top performers in their field. Wow. And why is it? I've never heard of that. Work? Yeah, well, it, it, and it's, you know, this is, this is just evidence of the same problem, isn't it? That we've been sold a certain view that we all have to be like, uh, you know, I don't know, killing ourselves. A bit, a bit right. like box of the horse in George Orwell's Animal Farm, whose answer to every problem, every setback was, I will work harder. Right. Uh, and uh, and he, he, you know, I mean, he literally, I mean, talk about not protecting the asset. I mean, he destroys his body. He destroys himself and is literally sent to the knacker's yard. And the whole time, he has actually exacerbated the very problems he was trying to solve. Right. Because he was just in this mode of exhausting himself. I'll just do more. I'll work harder. I'll get more. Of course, I believe in working hard. Uh, of course, I think there's value to that, to industry and so on. But I also think that there's, that there's something, we've, uh, something that's gone awry in our thinking. Uh, what I want is to be able to sleep well enough so that I can really concentrate and do great work. Uh, so that I can, I can have the, have the, uh, the mental strength uh, and clarity to be able to actually say no to something that's good but not the best thing. Right, no exactly. And, and you talk sure. also about, um, you know, having uh, this extreme criteria that, that really helps you through that discernment process. And I, I, I loved the analogy of the, the closet. Um, I actually have a, a person that I bring in uh, – occasionally every couple of years and she helps me go through that process and yeah. and you know i'm wondering if if you talk about in the book um you know about not only the power of of actually being able to come up with that list because again i think that that quarter, quarterly offsite will begin to help you be much clearer in the criteria that you use to filter things out uh, but then having somebody's external view of of seeing how things impact you. Like, why do you go to this thing every time you go? You come home and you complain about it, right? And sometimes you don't you don't see those things clearly. Yes, I I I, I mean I'm I'm not sure which way to riff on what you just said there, but but as you were thinking talking about the closet again, there it made me think of um, of a question Marie uh, Condi asked. Uh, and she says, you know, does it spark joy? And she's right. talking about physical items in your house, and, and I think it's a really beautiful question. And I, my wife and I have spent a good amount of time going through our home, and it was already pretty essentialist, but we've gone through a lot of the things. And, and she suggests holding up each item one at a time and saying, does this spark joy? And if it doesn't, then you suddenly have you know, a method for being able to pass this along to someone else right. uh, or, or get rid of it altogether. And, and I think this is true for our lives as well. And this idea is what I'm doing. Does it spark joy? Does it feel like this is the essential thing I was born to do? Am I on the right path? Right. I remember talking to somebody one time, going through a personal quarterly offsite with them. And, and part of that process when we do this program is we have people interview each other, uh, like a designer for somebody else. And as you interview them, after you've interviewed them, instead of giving them a list of words, you have to translate what you've read into a drawing, like into a graphic, and pass it back to them. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a beautiful graphic. It just has to try and say in a picture what you've heard because it helps you get to the very essence of, it, of, of the message, get to the, the key thing. And after I'd listened to this, uh, this, this fellow for a while, the, the image I drew was a, two lines, parallel lines. And, um, and, and, and I said, look, it seems to me that you're living a perfectly good life. But that as I listen to you, there's a different life, similar but really still different, that you really feel you ought to be living. 
and uh, and he conceded immediately this was true that he was sort of trying to keep pretending that the life he was on was enough of the things it ought to be, enough of the things he wanted to be that he doesn't need to change. And why why I share that story is because that was as far as that conversation went. And three years later, I was uh, you know, doing a keynote at another conference. And he was there, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, he said, he said I don't know if you remember this, but, but uh, you know, a few years ago, we had this conversation. I did remember it. And he said, I, I quit my job. I changed where I was going, and now I'm doing the thing I really want to be doing. And, and I'll tell you what was striking to me about meeting him both times. And the first time I met him, he was perfectly professional. You know, he was dressed in a you know, nice shirt, suit, and so on. He looked perfectly professional. But there wasn't very much light in him. You know, it just seemed like a sort of professional... I don't know, dryness or grayness maybe. And the second time I met him, he, was, he wore a baseball cap, he was in shorts, he's relaxed, and there was just light in him. And you could tell that this, it was almost like a different person. But now he was pursuing what he really wanted to do, what his essential mission in life was. And that is absolutely what I think essentialism is about at its heart. It's, it, it, it's not a time management technique. It's nothing like that. It's a relentless right. pursuit of becoming more of who you really are and less of who you really aren't. Well, I love that. And, you know, we could spend an hour just talking about part three, which you've already touched on a little bit, uh, which is the elimination part, you know, cutting out once you've realized the things that are trivial in your life, getting rid of them. You talked about the power of a graceful no. I'm just going to walk through these since we don't have time to go into them in depth. But, you know, clarifying uh, daring, and that's that's the saying no chapter, and uncommitting, uh, you know, winning by cutting your losses, editing, you know, this invisible art of, of getting rid of the things um, and, and, you know, having a clear focus on what remains, and, and really taking a look at establishing limits, and, you know, there are a number of books about setting boundaries with other people and really not letting them cross over that. Um, I want to just spend a couple of minutes. I, I know you're uh, still recovering from your jet lag, so I want to be mindful of the time. But, you know, what can you tell us, uh, you know, out of the six chapters uh, in the execute section? Because, I, you know, as we talked about in the beginning, strategy is great, and you can have this terrific strategy to do this. But if you get sucked right back into your life, right, and, and you don't, uh, practice the discipline, and I mean, you call this a disciplined pursuit of less. So, what is it? What's the secret to successful execution? I think that you have to look at the history of the word priority uh, to to get to the the, the essence of uh, effortless execution. And, and the history of the word priority is that it came into the English language in the 1400s. And it was singular, you know, the word that we have today, priority. Uh, well, what did it mean? Uh, it meant the prior thing. That is the very first thing. And that's a perfectly helpful word to have been created, and, and it, it served its useful purpose in trying to discern between many different things and select the thing that was really the most important. And it did so for the next 500 years. So let me just put that in context. That is, for half a millennium, nobody thought to pluralize that word, that, that everybody understood that we, you can only have a single priority at any given moment. And, and yet, then when we came into the Industrial Revolution, so 500 years later, as we move into you know, the, 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 the 1900s, uh, somebody then pluralized it and started speaking of priorities. And, and ever since, we've lost track of the meaning of that word and we, it's become a less useful meaning because now people say with no sense of irony at all well here are my 10 priorities here's all of these different things that are the absolute very first most important thing before everything else and I think that that's one of the key things that makes it difficult uh, to, to execute on what matters most is that we just think it all matters most and so as we figure out what is you know so for example something that I think people can do every day now so we've talked about every 90 days having a personal quality off time. We've talked about every week having a, a dream routine and, and designing each week as a, around what matters most and, and using that as, as a pilot and as a, as, as a reverse pilot. We've talked about those two things. Here's the third thing. 
And it's that every day then you identify, you know, here are the six things I'm going to do today. And, uh, you know, you, you put them in priority order, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then you cross off the bottom five. And you take that item and you say, look, that's what's important now. And I'm going to work on that until that is complete. And, uh, you know, I'm going to schedule a couple of hours to work on that and do nothing else until it's done. I'm going to discover the magic of doing what's important now. And then you finish it and you move on to the next item of the list. And so that at any one time you have trained yourself uh, to just ask this question, what's important now? Answer it clearly uh, and, uh, and not try and pretend you can do everything that's on your mind right now. That to me is a very simple every day, even every hour practice uh, that I think is, is it's hard to do. You are not going to get there in a day. Uh, this is a journey. Uh, but over a, a journey, let's say over the journey of a year or maybe even three years of holding these personal quarterly off-sites and starting to design it the right, you know, the dream routine that we talked about, I think that over time you get more and more precise in being able to answer this question, what's important now? And then, really, you are living the life of an essentialist. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, I am, uh, I, I am so in need of, of uh, what we have just talked about today. I, you know, I, I have felt uh, very much like the left-hand diagram on the cover of your book. And for those of you who are listening, uh, you, you've got to go look this book up, and you'll know exactly what we've been talking about. Uh, Greg, I am so, so happy uh, that you took the time, and uh, uh, I hope you can go and get some restful sleep after uh, after your flight and uh, again, we've been talking about the book Essentialism, the Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Greg, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you ever so much. Okay. Have a terrific weekend. And uh, for those of you who'd like to know uh, more about Greg, uh, Greg, how, how can they best reach you? Where's the best site to find all your social media connections and, and also to find more about your book? I think uh, I think Greg McEwen dot com G R E G M C K E O W N dot com, uh, or for those that are really serious about really starting to design their life essentially, uh, I would uh, I would recommend going to ApplyEssential dot com, uh, and uh, and and applying to be part of this program that uh, that we're already seeing having such a a life changing effect on people. Fabulous. Thanks again, and have a super weekend. And for those Thank of you, you who'd like to know more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, it's just www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. And we also have a private Facebook group if you would like to join that. Uh, you can just apply directly online, and we'll get back to you and look forward to getting to know you better. Everybody have a, an amazing weekend, and uh, God bless.